things don't work when you get up here, it's my fault. But you might want to check it when you come back up. Um, it's Veterans Day. Well, could we please have the veterans stand? We just want to honor them. We want to thank you guys for serving. We want to thank you for doing the things that you do. Okay? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. It's it, that persecuted church and Veterans Day. I kind of like the fact that they come on the same day. Seems to me like there's a real tight fit between those two, right? What it takes to really have freedom. All right. Uh, well, with all that, uh, we are now headed into the sermon. So um, thanks for the clock and everything else. Uh, I just want to tell you something. I am discovering that women are like just absolutely awesome. <laughs> now, I do want to say this isn't a totally new revelation. You know, I mean, I mean, back when I can't remember quite when, but I, it was somewhere between third and say sixth grade when my eye got caught on a particular little girl named Jody Heratic who was like just a mag, you know, and everything else. And, and I still remember absolutely vividly just what a nerve-wracking experience it was to, you know, call her up and, and how long it took me, you know, I mean, literally months, you know, trying to figure out what to say and how to say it and call her up and ask her to go on a hike with me. And, you know, and she said, yes. And so, you know, I get there and, and you know, I'm, I'm on the walk with her and I have one goal the whole trip, one goal, and that is to hold her pretty little hand. You know what I mean? Just the thought of holding her hand, it just got me in Grand Central Station inside. But I got to be cool on the outside, right? So on the inside, it's like, vroom, 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 vroom. But on the inside, I'm just trying to play it cool. And I'm trying to pull the, you know, the casual move. So as we're walking along, I just kind of, you know, I'm timing it to where I can just kind of reach down and grab her hand for a reason that makes a little bit of sense. But, you know, it'll be that moment, right? And so, you know, here comes the moment I'm looking off, and I do the nice little no-look move, and, and I go down to reach her hand, and I had forgotten that that morning she had deeply cut her hand and had this huge thing of gauze around her hand that had now been bleeding into the gauze and was kind of this sticky, you know what I mean? And so I go down to do this no-look move, forgetting about it, and I, I grabbed a hold of the gauze, and I still... <laughs> so... I would call that a really inauspicious start to my romantic life, okay? Uh, I'm not sure it ever really got a lot better, but bottom line is, you know, Julie actually liked me, and so we got married. And, and then I discovered, you know, this second level of the awesomeness of women. And the first way that I discovered was, is that, you know, it didn't take me very long to figure out, but it did take me a few years to realize the depth of how truly better human being Julie is than I am. I mean, just watching her over the years, I was just humbled continually about the nature of the goodness that was in her, and it was calling me to be a better person. And, and over time, I learned that while some of that is truly unique to Julie, some of that is, you know, part of the female species, you know, part of that brand of humanity, and, and that there is just this thing that is in there that is quite different than a man, and really is incredible. I mean, just remarkable. And so that was, you know, pretty much where I've been living for a long time, realizing that Julie's a better human being and that women are probably better than men in, all, in, in total. And, and, all, and I, you know, no harm, guys, because anybody who's married knows that this is true. So, but the bottom line is, is that when I started studying Ruth, 
God has actually been taking me to yet another place of an appreciation, of an understanding, of seeing something that it doesn't mean as a guy I'll ever truly understand. I won't, okay? But there's just something that he's opening my eyes to, and I don't even know if I can articulate exactly how to explain it, except I'm about to do a sermon on it, and hopefully by the end of it, you'll begin to see what I do. And, and what I want to say is, is he's actually been challenging probably the most fundamental thing in my theology. I don't know what I've preached about more than this, and there's probably something, it's probably devotionals, but I think the second most thing I've preached about is, is God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what he does. That's who he is. And I preach about that all the time, and I believe that, and that's an absolute foundation of what my faith is. But I've discovered something in this sermon that is even deeper than that. In fact, it undergirds it. That makes it possible, in fact. In fact, if, if I were to say it this way as to how important this is, it goes something like this. There is this straight line to God that he's taking us up straight to him. And if we do not get these fundamental things right, if we do not get these first things right, we will just be, over time, we'll just, as things happen, as life happens, as difficulties happen, as persecution happens, as things happen, we'll just be getting further and further and further away from the truth of who God is, that straight line to him. I have discovered something which I believe to be more fundamental than what I understood. And I, I, you, you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. And I don't want to go too deep into that because I kind of knew that that was there. But I'd never realize it the way that God showed it to me today and how critical it is, not just for women but for men, all of us, how critical it is that we get this piece right. I want to say it was amazing to listen to Faith's Prayer for the Persecuted Church because when you get done hearing this sermon, you're going to see that that's precisely what she prayed. So I want to say God's, God's working. He's, he's moving here. And this is going to be one of those days. So I am inviting. I, I realize that when I start talking really flowingly and effusively about women and so on, that I endanger my membership in the John Wayne Eastwood Men's Club, okay, of who the official chapter chairman is John Bateman. So it seems appropriate to me that John Bateman should be the guy who's praying for our sermon today, that I still keep it manly enough, okay, that I don't, all right. So John, you're on. Pray for the sermon, of course, and then another church. Thanks, John. Father, we just ask a blessing on Julie for having lived with this man for so long, <laughs> just now figuring it out. Lord, we do come to um, grow closer to you and grow closer to each other. Uh, we open our ears, Father, to hear your word, quiet our hearts, Lord. And we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would come and move amongst us to take your word and make it real in our hearts, that we can apply it to our daily lives and, and follow Thank even closer, harder you. after you, Father, and do the things that you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord. Uh, pray for... The Halls Church in Cobway, Africa. Uh, ask, Father, that you would remember those uh, deaf people that they are reaching out to who are cast out and ignored by their community. Father, that you would uh, pour out a blessing on that little, that little group of people who are struggling to find a place in this world, struggling to know who you are in the midst of a society that doesn't care about them. And I just pray that you, you bless that little church, Father, 
and their efforts, Father. In Jesus' Amen. name. Thank you, John. Awesome. All right, so before we dig into Ruth, there's, there's one principle that we have to just remind ourselves about. We all know it, but we tend to forget it easily. And that is God is not male nor female, right? He's not, we refer to him in, as in the male form, in masculine form, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But that is not, God is not male, and there's something else out there called female or feminine, right? God is both, and when God creates mankind, he clearly says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is his idea that he did, in fact, create Adam first, but then there was something taken out of him. And it's almost like you could say Adam had the male and female, and then it was separated. And let me put it another way. We think of it as male and female because we have males and females. But to God, it's the two of them together that image the fullness of who he actually is. Right? So he's not male nor female. And, and, and just to prove that out, do a little Bible study on it sometime and just go through the scriptures and see how many times God refers to himself in feminine ways. Calling himself a nursing, nursing mother in Isaiah, calling himself a uh, nursemaid in Psalms, calling himself a mother in Zechariah. Even Jesus, who is God, was telling a parable and the God figure in the parable is a woman. So, I mean, this is not something that is foreign to theology whatsoever. This is not an, a, it shouldn't be a controversial statement. I, I realize in, at this point in time with some of the theology that's out there, that may sound like that, but it isn't. Okay, the truth is, is God isn't male nor female. Male and female image the fullness of who God is. Okay, and particularly when they're together on all, on all kinds of different levels. So with that said, and with keeping that in mind, I now want to head into Ruth, and I'm going to show you how this plays out, okay, in a, an in important way. So with Ruth, what we've got is, is we've got this gal, Naomi. Now, this, this map has them going back to Bethlehem, but they started in Bethlehem. Naomi, her husband, and her two sons. There's a famine here. They go over to Moab. This is the land of Israel over here. And yes, there's a couple of tribes over here, but this is really foreign territory. And they go over here, and they're, they're trying to make a living when the husband dies. Then the two sons marry to Moabitess women, not Israelites, Moabites. They marry these women, and then the two sons die. So now we have Naomi, Ruth, and the other daughter-in-law, okay? Now what happens in that is, is that Naomi says to the two daughters-in-laws, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. And, and then she goes into a longer explanation, or a longer discourse, which we looked at previously. And sure enough, one of them does in fact go home. The second one does not, okay? Now, here's the part that I really want us to laser in on today, where there's this, there's this stopping to smell the rose, because we can cover this in a way that if we just read it, it all makes for a nice little 15-minute story that has a lot of impact and a lot of import. But the bottom line is, is that we miss all these little hidden jewels, these things that are underneath the surface. So I want you to just for a second with me, I want you to stop and smell this, this rose, which is not such a sweet smell, because what, it, what she's saying when she's talking to these girls is, things are far more bitty, bitter for me than for you. These women have lost their husbands. That's a bitter pill to swallow, right? Okay? But there is this family there that could take care of them. They could go back as widows and so on. But she says, but the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. 
Now that's, I want, you just, I want you to stop and understand what it takes for a person to get to the place to where they think that what God is trying to do is to punch them in the face. That's what raised fist means, right? It means this, his fist is raised against me. Now this is, this is a, right? She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's got these two daughters-in-law. In some ways, they're almost more of a burden, except that she's so old that when she goes back and there isn't jobs and so on for her to go back and there's no social security, she's going to go back to a situation of having to scrape for a living, literally gleaning from the fields. And that's how she's going to stay alive. And yes, it's a little bit helpful that the girls do this with her and, and that kind of thing, but that's going to be a very hard life for them. And she's right to try and send them back and so on. And the bottom line is, is I want us to just take this story that was a long time ago, over, well, over almost close to 4,000, but not quite, a little short of that. And I want you to understand that there's a lot of people in this room right now that have felt in some degree that God was against them, that God was doing something. Maybe you didn't get to the place where you felt like there was a fist against you, although if we were to be truthful and raise hands, and please don't, but if we were to do that, you would find that there's a lot of people in here that would say, yeah, I do feel like that has happened to me. I'm going through a very, very minor version of this right now. This will sound stupid to you, but it's a big deal to me, okay? There are these things that God is revealing to me about the church and what it can be and how it can be it that are the most exciting, wonderful, uh, challenging, incredible things that I've ever thought of, I've ever heard of. I, I haven't seen him in play. I haven't seen, and I've got, there's all these things that God is giving to me. And at the very same time that God is giving these things and, and speaking them and having people get excited about it and start moving into it and so on, we're experiencing something at a staff level that is actually incredibly difficult. And that is that our staff is, we're at a, probably about half of what it takes. And we're using lots of volunteers and we have cut away everything that was extraneous. It's not like we're doing a bunch of things that'd be easy, well, just quit doing that. I mean, we're, we're talking about stuff like, do you want a bulletin? You know what I mean? I mean, that's how, that's how low level and how basic we're talking about what we're doing. And even just that, we're so understaffed that even just at that level, what's happening right now is it's not really a terribly healthy environment. We have a lot of fun. We love each other. We respect each other. We're there for each other. But the truth of the matter is, is that people are, are really under stress. And it, it, this just this week, we had a moment where it just kind of boiled over and, and had a rough thing. And, you know, so that's just at a staff level. And then you go up to these things about how the church runs. And yes, we're forming steering teams and we're doing this. But there's three people, three of us that are tasked with helping to form these teams. And our bandwidth is so completely consumed and then some that we're not having time. We don't have the bandwidth to just do the next work that we need to do in order to get these new things to happen that will make things better, but we just don't even have the bandwidth to get to there. Do you see that? And, and as I do that, I, there's a thing in me that can go off like this. I don't tell that story for your sympathy. I want to I wanna have you, I, wanna, I want you to see. See, I could respond to it like this. I could be saying, you know, do, are you mad at me, God? Do you, you know, why would you give me vision and not provision. How, why would you give us something that we can't do? I mean, that's, that's not right. That's not, and I could get angry at God. Now, I just don't ever get angry at God. It's just not, it's just not in my makeup to do, and I'll explain that why in a little bit. But the bottom line is, is that it would be very easy for me to think, uh, did we do something wrong? 
Surely we must have sinned somehow, and that's the reason for this. Or uh, something else, or, you know, or you're just not happy with me, or, or you're mad at me, or you've raised your fist, and, and you see what I'm saying? Now, like I say, that's a very minor instance of this. Go to the places now where there's people sitting in this room that have lost jobs, lost homes, thought that God was going to come through, and then he didn't. And this is painful, and what am I supposed to do with this, and how am I supposed to process this, and you see what I mean? There's this incredible stuff, and then go further than that. There's people that have lost spouses, and I mean some just physically from the spouse leaving, and some because they died. People here. Now that's hard. It doesn't really matter if God's causing all things to work together for good. That's hard. Okay? That's always going to be hard. No matter what else happens, that's going to be hard. Having lost, right? I mean, you've got to understand something about Christianity, which is this is the worst way to build a religion ever. Because what the Bible is filled with is stories of people going through incredibly difficult things. This is not an invitation to the easy street. This is not a happily ever after story, right? The man and the woman get together and they're happy forevermore, right? I mean, but that's not life now, is it? You know, there's this other thing that's taking place in life, which is incredibly hard. And you can look at it in Abraham. You can look at it in Moses. You can look at it in Judges. You can look at it in David. You can look at it in the Kings. You can look at it in the prophets. You can look at it in the New Testament where Paul is left for dead multiple times. Paul is shipwrecked and should die. Paul is beaten. Paul is stoned. Look at this. (laughs) Revelation. We did it for a year and a half. And you do know why Revelation was written, right? Because we... We did it in a year and a half. And here's the basic, line, basic idea of why Revelation was written. Because at some point in time, things are going to get so ridiculously difficult that if you didn't know that it was going to get difficult, everybody would have left God. Your love will grow cold. Knowing that it's going to be difficult at least prepares you for God's in control. It may not be in my lifetime, but God's in control in a way. He's in, you know, I may not see how he's in control in my lifetime. But the bottom line is, is persecution, persecuted church. This is the precursor to what happens then. So from the beginning until the end of the book, you have this long story of hardship. Now, not only hardship, you have all kinds of miracles and stuff. The hall of fame of faith in Hebrews goes something like this. Look at these incredible things that these people did. Look at the choices that they made, the sacrifices they made for God. And then he gets to one part where he says, time is, I don't have enough time to tell you about how this guy did this and God did this incredible thing. And this guy did this and God did this incredible thing. And this guy did this and God did this incredible thing. But then he goes into this part of the end of the Hall of Fame of Faith and just listen to it. Others were tortured, refusing to turn away from God in order to be set free. Now, do know, they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection, but do understand what their state was. While they were alive, some were jeered at, their backs were cut open with whips, others were chained in prison, some died by stoning, some sawed in half, others were killed with the sword, some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. What a pleasant sermon, huh? (laughs) (laughs) but this is a truth of Christianity. This is one of the reasons why I know the Bible to be true, because the Bible is true to the human condition. 
The Bible is true to what it claims, which is a fallen world in which people who are traveling and who are, who are going after God are going to experience hardship. And yes, a lot of times they do see in this life the truth that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Right? We do see that even in Ruth. You can read that book with the advantage of historical perspective and you can see that in a very real way th there's a good that's happening to Ruth. Ruth becomes this person who ends up in the family tree of David. It's Boaz and Ruth that are the great grandparents of David. I mean that's a remarkable thing. In fact Ruth becomes named in the lineage of those people who gave who were in the lineage of Jesus. <laughs> I mean you know had her husband not died, had Naomi and they not gone back and all that kind of bad stuff. So you can say, God worked all things together for good in some fashion, right? You can say that. And that is true. And may I say something? Nothing I'm saying today doesn't take away from the import of understanding the truth of that. What I'm hoping to do today is for you to understand more deeply how it's true or, or put another way, how to actually own the truth of that. Because the truth is, is that when we're talking to somebody who has just lost, say, a child, I'll tell you what you cannot do. You cannot go up to them and say, God's causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know you just lost your baby, but God's causing all things to work together. If you say that kind of stuff, you're just an idiot. It's not that it's not true. It's just so stinking insensitive. It's like the poor senator who uttered something that all Christians understand, but he didn't understand the world would not get this. That senator was running in a race, and he actually was likely to win. It was a tight race, but it looked like he was going to win. And what he said in a debate was, is that if a woman gets raped, God's intent in, with the baby. Now, as Christians, we understand something. We understand this paradox of incredible difficulty in life, which is not God's fault. It is a fallen world. And God causing incredibly good things to come out of it. And what he was trying to say was, is look, it is tragic. It is horrible that there was this rape situation. That is not God. That was not God's will. That is a terrible thing. But God is the kind of God who can take horrible things and birth a child who has purpose, who has promise, who may, who, who can, who's going to make a difference in the world. You see what I mean? So we get this as Christians. But what did it sound like to people who aren't Christians? He just said that her getting raped was God's will. <laughs> what kind of a moron are you? <laughs> and he lost the election by a considerable margin. Everybody agrees because of that comment. And I want to say, if you're trying to comfort people by walking up to them in the middle of them losing a spouse, losing a job, losing a house, and your argument is God's causing all things to work together for good, you know, thanks. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It's not that it's not true. It is true. It's that something has to happen before that. There's another truth that undergirds the truth that God is indeed working all things together for good, whether you see it in your lifetime or not. Let me, I want to illustrate this right now, so, okay? I have asked Josh and Joy to come up, and this is Josh and Joy Benjamin. They got married. How long ago was it now? 
about a month and a half. So come right here, okay? So aren't they darling? You got to just give them a little hand just for everything, okay? So come right here. Okay, now, these guys are incredible and they're awesome. She is a great actor. I can't call her an actress anymore because in Hollywood you don't get to call females. They have to call them actors now, okay? So you, this is a phenomenal actor, okay? Now, I don't know how good an actor Josh is, but we're going to find out right now. <laughs> I love you, brother, okay? He, but he's a man, and he's going to work great for this role, okay? So what I want you to see is this is that role that is in every... It's not only chick flicks, but it happens a lot in chick-type flicks, okay? And what happens is there is this thing that happens with the female. You guys can't be together right now, okay? And, and it's like this. And what happens is, is that she has, let's say, a baby, right? It could be a mother or a friend or whatever, but she has somebody who she's, in, you know, in you know, the, their baby, right? But, but this baby dies. This child of theirs dies in some tragic way. Now, when that happens, this is overwhelming to her. Right, the way that women's brains are spaghetti and everything's wired in, it is not that, you know, he's got this compartmentalized thing and so he can take the pain of that moment and he can file it away to deal with it another time. And then depending on the type of person he is, he may get to it or he may not, and it may come out, you know, in some odd way at some point in time. Just different personalities and so on. But the point is, is he can take that. For her, the way she's processing this, women are spaghettis and all wired up. What's happening is every thought is infused. Every emotion, every moment is infused with the loss of this child. And it is completely overwhelming to her soul. To everything about her. And so what happens is, is that she starts to break down. And as she's getting into this really difficult place, he sees her. Now he's lost a child too. But he sees her going through this incredibly difficult thing. And what does he want to do in the movie? Right? In the movie, he starts to move towards her. Now, she doesn't want that because she knows what he's trying to do. She's trying to hug him. She's trying to make it. She doesn't want that. And so what she starts to do is, as he keeps coming towards her, she starts beating him. She starts trying to get him to not do this. And what does he do in the movie, right? He just keeps going, and he brings her in. You see this? And when she finally comes in, she gets to a place to where finally, now that she's engulfed in this, she can give it up. And then she just breaks down. Now, how many times have you seen that in a movie? Right? Why? Because there's something that's incredibly real about this moment. This is the way that we want it to be. Thank you, guys. Okay. <laughs> uh, you feel it, don't you? Now think about it. See, here's what's going on in a movie. In a movie, we're sitting in a dark room with a screen, and we know that there's, it's a two-dimensional screen, we know that it's play acting, we know that it's a script, we know all these things. But the thing that we do in a movie is we're narrative beings, we, we, we enter into stories and we learn from them. So what we do in a movie is what we call suspend disbelief. We suspend the idea that it's actors. We suspend the idea that this is a movie theater. And what we do is, is darkness is why it helps so much. We, we transcend the time and the space and we enter into the emotions to the characters. We enter in and we start experiencing life as they are experiencing it. And when they come together and they have that moment, there's something in us that just goes, yes. What's the yes? What's the resonance? I want to show you. Back to Genesis again. Watch this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a light to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, 
I have always thought until literally yesterday morning, I have always, where have you imagined Adam to be at the time that she's interacting with the snake? Where have you thought he was? Here she is over here interacting with the tree and the snake and all this stuff, right? And where's Adam? He's got to be over here. Clearly, he's got to be over, you know, butsing with something, right? Because that's what guys do. Because no guy would be such an idiot as to stand next to her and let this drama take place. Surely we are not that stupid. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Wow. (laughs) The capacity for guys to sit back and let something happen is extraordinary. The capacity for them to act is also extraordinary. One of them is good and one of them is not. This idea that he would sit there as this thing unfolded and let this happen, this is ridiculous and so God does this. Your desire to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that just, that, that, you know, if you're not a Christian boy, that just rule over you and, uh, and it's meant to. Because here's what's being said. What's being said is, is woman, you took the lead. You, you did this thing. You interacted. You did something. Now, I want to argue, and I've argued many times before, so we're not going to spend too much time on this, but it was a good thing. It was her strength that hurt her. Her strength was there's something wrong here. What's wrong? And she was trying to work through it, whereas the guy was just going along. That was his strength. It's good to be followers of God. It's bad to be following anything. So he exhibited his strength and his weakness. So did she. She was trying to take care of the problem, and it got her into a problem. Now, so what God does is he made them equal, face to face, not one over another. And in the end, no more male nor female, Greek nor Jew. In the end, in heaven, it's not one over another. There isn't a patriarchal orientation in heaven. There isn't. Okay? What there is, is during this lifetime, because of this scene, there is a moment where what God has done is, is he has said to the woman... I am going to cause there to be a desire in you to be for him. Now, I want you to see God didn't have to do much in order to put that desire in there because think about how a woman is with her children. What does a woman want to see with her children more than anything else? Them to flourish. A woman wants her children to flourish so much that she would gladly not flourish if it helped them to flourish the more right? That's the way women are. That's what makes them awesome, okay? Now, what God did here was, is he put that same thing in her for her husband. It's not to say that she can't flourish magnificently. What it's to say is that her desire is going to be, if it's between you and me, Proverbs 31, woman, etc., I have this desire to do what it takes to see you flourish, Now, that's wonderful. But there is this thing where she's learning now how to follow. See? She didn't follow God's command. She's now learning how to follow with the desire that's in her. And what's happening with the guy is, the guy is having to step up and do what? Cover. Here's the guy's natural inclination. You know that movie scene that we just did 
right? And he came towards her. You do realize that in real life, what happens an awful lot of times is when there's a hardship and something terrible happens, what the guy does, he doesn't come towards his woman. He goes away because <laughs> I'm hurt. I'm, I'm damaged now. I'm in pain. Somebody come over here and help me. <laughs> see, this is not, you see what I mean? Now, if we saw that in the movie, what would we do? Boo, hiss, boo, hiss, shame on you. You see what I mean? He didn't do the right thing. He needs to get outside of himself, and he needs to be about covering, protecting, encompassing, surrounding her in a way that she feels safe. This is one of the reasons why men have testosterone, and they are stronger physically. And women don't have that. They can be smarter and they can be all kinds of things. But as a general rule of thumb, they're generally not as strong, particularly when guys are full with testosterone. Just as a rule of thumb. It can be, you know, you get my drift. And the point is, is what God is doing is he's trying to, he's trying to get this protector, nurturing thing out of men where they will come over and they will come and they will protect. And so when we see that thing in the movie, what it does in our hearts is we say, that's what it's supposed to look like. That's good. It resonates in me. It makes me think, yes, the world is right. People make the right decisions. The man comes and covers. The woman is safe and is able to, to have this spaghetti thing go on, and it's a safer place for her. Not dangerous because she's being protected. Do you see all this? I hope I'm not being sexist or anything like that when I say this. I'm just trying to be accurate. If you have an issue with it, please do call me because you know me. If you don't know me, you will. Uh, you know, I work on getting this true to each person's condition as opposed to just some stereotype. I'm about to use a stereotype in a moment. And, and the key to stereotypes is they're not actually true to gender. And there's all kinds of marriage counseling, all kinds of marriage seminars that go into what are really stereotypes. But you can get somebody like Julie and I and we flip on nine-tenths of it. You know what I mean? Where I'm like the woman and she's like the man. And no, I don't get kicked out of the John Wayne Eastwood Club for that, John. Okay, do you see it? Okay, now. So who does Naomi have? When she says this about the fist. Who's coming and covering? That's part of the reason why she's so overwhelmed. Particularly in that society where the physicality becomes so much more important. Women can make it on their own now financially, economically, you know, safety, food, everything else. It was incredibly difficult for that to happen there. It was dangerous and it was hard for a single woman. It didn't have family protecting her and she didn't have that. And so the bottom line is there is this protective thing that she doesn't have and that's one of the reasons why she feels so abandoned as to say that God has formed his fist against her. Except that she does get a hug. Look, Naomi said to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, I want you to just, just I almost want you to close your eyes, but you don't have to. But I want you to listen to what she says in the light of what we've just been talking about. An embrace, a hug, a covering, a protection. I want you to listen to what Ruth says and hear it as Naomi would hear it. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, 
I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Not you have to come under my God because after all, I'm the one that's providing for us and so on and so I need you to be after me. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. This is a hug. This is that embrace. Naomi is going back, and you can just picture, I wish if, if Joy was up here, she could illustrate this just perfectly, but she is walking back, and she can't, she can't even take the next step. She's in such despair. And then this hug comes, and it allows her to be able to take the next step, and the next step. Do you see it? She gets this hug. Who does she get this hug from? Well, Ruth. Well, no. Yes, it's Ruth that manifests it. But who's the hug from? God. God has put a person in her life that at a critical point in time, the God who sees every persecution, every hardship, who hears every cry. God has put this person. Now, is it the classic man? No. Does it have to be? It turns out, no. We define the hug that God needs to give us for us to be okay. The fact is, God is hugging. No, he's not, Kurt. You don't know my situation. This health diagnosis that I got, and then my husband, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and I didn't get that hug. And here's what I want to say. I want to challenge you to go back to God and ask him. We're going to do that in one moment, but I want to just take this just a little bit further because I want you to understand something about the hug. When, Ruth, when Naomi gets the hug from God from Ruth, that does not make everything okay. This is very important now. We're about to talk about a stereotype between male and female. Here's what males do. I'm going to fix it. Now, not all males do that. That's why this is a stereotype. Because some couples flip. Like, Julie doesn't really want a guy to come in and not fix it. She's going, if you're here, fix the dang thing. See what I mean? But that's not classically women, okay? So it's a stereotype, which means that it's true in a lot of cases, but just don't go too far with it. And the bottom line is, I want you to see something about Naomi gets the hug. It doesn't mean that the child still didn't die. It doesn't mean that the husband is suddenly resurrected and it's all better. When Job gets back, double the family, double the money, double the health, does it mean he didn't lose the first family? Does it mean that the grief of that went away? She comes to the village and says, so the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, which is hardship, bitterness. Okay? For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Do you hear this? You see, she, just because she got the hug so that she could take the next step didn't mean that there wasn't still the pain in her life. 
And this is where I'm getting to this revelation that, that I, I never realized that we know that God causes everything to work together for good and those who love God are called according to his purpose for them. I never realized how male it was of me to think that that's what would make everything better. As a male who compartmentalizes and actually deals with the compartments, which is fairly unusual right there. But as a male who compartmentalizes, the thing that I really want us to understand is, is it's, it's, you know, I, the thought that God is causing all things to work together for good is what makes me not be, lose hope. It's what makes me not think that God's raising his fist to me. It's what makes me think he's doing good. I, I always think that God is doing good. Even in everything that's going on, I always think that God is doing good. I always do. Now, I may have my moment, but I'm telling you it doesn't last but for a moment because all of a sudden I just go, that's stupid. Why am I thinking that way? Oh, my soul, why are you cast down? Perk up. You know what I mean? God's in control. He's doing something good. Just figure out what he's doing and participate with it. But I want you to see how male fix it that is. It turns out that there's something that's got to come below that, underneath that, to gird that. Now, I've always known this, but it's never been separated for me in a way that I could speak to it like I'm speaking to it right now. Because I want to say, this is, this is feminine in its stereotypical way of thinking about it as us. You know what has to be under the fix-it of God's causing all things to work together for good? What has to be under that? That God loves me. That he's crazy about me. That he gave his son on a cross for me. That his love for me is total. And that it never ends. What can separate us? Height, depth, this, that, principalities, powers, what can separate us? Nothing. If you don't believe that, then when hardship comes, it takes you another direction, doesn't it? You just do interpret it differently. He causes all things together for good. I can believe that, but what that means is, and then you come up with something that isn't actually God. Folks, we have to get to a place I was given this as a gift, honestly, because my first encounter with God was his incredible love for me. And I've never lost that. It has informed every thought, action, most of the reactions. It informs everything that is my understanding of God and everything that I preach about every single week. The bottom line, the thing that is underneath the fact that he's causing all things to work together for good is that he's holding me. And he's never going to let go. No matter what I do. He's never let go of me for a moment. When I sin, when I fail, when I do certain things, in my mind, I think I have separated myself from God. I have, I'm off here. I've got to, as a man, I've got to do something to come back to it. I've got to do this. I've got to, and I get all of this perversion going on in my head. Let the perversion of the sin be the only perversion that is in your life. Don't let the perversion lead to another perversion, another perversion, another perversion, which takes you far away from God. 
Understand that even in your greatest sin, if your orientation is to run to him, his arms are open wide on the cross at every moment for precisely that. And no matter how hard things are, that he is holding you firmly, that he has got his arms wrapped around you, that he is encompassing you, that he is covering you. He says this to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is our greatest commandment, right? That is our greatest commandment. You don't want to know why it's really our greatest commandment? Because that's what God is doing. He is loving us with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. That's how he loves us. So if you're somebody who is finding yourself getting over, over into the rough here, not going down the, the pathway, the, the, the straight and narrow, the, the one that leads to God. If you find yourself over there, how do you get back to that? Well, let me just make it really clear to you. You have to divorce your circumstances from his love. You have to divorce your circumstances from his love. In a moment here, I'm going to ask you to take a moment and let God speak to you about how much he loves you. And the key to it is this. If you think about your circumstances, then you'll be in the same hole, the same pit, the same spiral downward as what you're in currently. You have to let him speak to you purely. The Bible demonstrates to us over and over and over again that he is in fact working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose and that you may know what that is and you may never know what that is until you get to heaven. But that that is the truth. And what you need to do is to understand that that is where circumstances belong, underneath that umbrella. But the thing that comes and supports that whole thought is that God loves you. And this can't just be an intellectual ascent. This is that female spaghetti wired up to where every thought, every moment, everything in your life is infused with this truth. Which is to say it's got to be an experience. How do you have an experience of God's love that isn't connected with your circumstances? I mean, if you're about to lose your house and God suddenly saves your house, boy, don't you feel like God loves you? And now you're ripe for a fall because you've made his love dependent upon circumstances which he may use in ways that you don't like and don't understand and so shipwreck your faith. True that? Right? Take the time now, would you? Just about five minutes. We're going to do something right after this. We're going to do this fairly short. But I want you to close your eyes. Kevin, thanks for coming up and giving us a little in the back. But, but bottom line, what I want you to do right now, just alone, and this is between you and God now, okay? I want you to close your eyes. If you don't know the Lord, what a perfect time to go to the Lord and say, is it true that you love me? Is that true? I'm telling you, go to him. And if you feel like he doesn't love you, ask him a question. Ask him to, ask him to show you how he loves you. Ask him to make you feel that. If you don't understand how to love him apart from your circumstances, ask him how to understand his love that is surpassing of the circumstances. Take a minute. Thanks.
Holy Spirit, come and speak to hearts. Holy Spirit, come and embrace lives. with him about it. He's not threatened by your questions. He's not threatened by your thoughts. Be open. Be transparent. Holy Spirit, fall. Embrace this congregation. down and pick up that cup that's in front of you. There's two cups. Lord, we lift this lower cup in which is the body that was broken for us and we realize that Satan has done all that he could in order to break our fellowship, in order to break our bond with you, in order to break our lives, that we should become hopeless and in despair and that we should lose who you are that we should become separated from you. But on the cross, you healed us, body, soul, and spirit. You healed us and made us whole. You made us whole again. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we take and we put our finger down there knowing that our lives have been broken as you were on the cross and that when we take this body together, we are made whole again by the one who gave himself for us, you. Take this cup together, would you? And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift up this cup in which is the life of Christ. And we drink deeply of the life that you want us to have. The one where in every moment, in every way, at every thought, we are infused with the truth every box in a guy's brain and every piece of spaghetti in a woman's filled with the truth of your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this life that it might become ours. Usher, could you come forward?
I want to thank you for giving generously to this church, which I say because I want to thank you that you have given generously and I, because I'm saying in faith, thank you for giving generously, for bringing your tithe to the storehouse, that everything that God wants to accomplish here will get done because we have all done our parts in finances, in volunteering, in everything, in being part of his body in an active manner, not men passively standing by watching something go, but engaging such as to change. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, that is what our tithe says. That is what this money that we give to you says right now that we are in, that we want your kingdom to come, that we want your will to be done, that we want your love to be manifest, to flow out of this place as rivers of, as rivers of living water to impact the lives of those who do not know the love of God. Let it flow deep. Thank you, God. Provide for what you have guided. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Thank you, guys. Now, what we're going to do here is this. We're going to sing our final song like we do, but then I'm gonna, we're going to do a little something different after this moment. If you want prayer, either grab somebody next to you, which I always think is the best thing to do, or somebody else that's in the building that you'd like to pray for you. Grab somebody and ask them to pray for you, and you pray for them. Now, you can go. It's time. You know, you don't have to do this if you're good and all that kind of stuff. And every, you so feel free to leave. But do me a favor. Kind of move it out into the hall so that people that want to take a minute to pray can pray. And if you really want...